You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. This episode of The Morning Muster is sponsored by Beta Marine. For over 20 years, Beta Marine has been providing reliable, smooth-running marine diesels to suit a wide range of applications. Built on Kubota blocks, these 100% mechanical engines offer the lowest total cost of ownership, widely available parts, and a five-year warranty. Beta Marine USA has a new online parts store, and they deal in sail drives, alternators, engine mounts, and feathering props now. Now we've got a Beta 60 in Rocinante, and we love it. We chose Beta for the simplicity of the engine. And because every time we called their office, we got a hold of Lisa or Stan, and they're both such nice, helpful, patient people. Um, let's get started. I, we're talking about choosing the right boat today, and you both have a lot of experience on a, a bunch of different boats, from surveying to sailing and, and working on them, I'm sure. So I, you, I'm excited to have you both here. We've got Pippa and Mike Firestone. Pippa, what's your last name? Turton. Turton, that's it. Pippa Turton and Mike Firestone with us um, to talk about choosing the right boat and some of the attributes of different boats that uh, we all find worthwhile and not worthwhile. This is a huge topic and people are always discussing this all over the internet and um, everyone's got opinions, right, uh, on <laughs> what the right boat is. And But I guess what I wanted to start start off by chatting about is what do you think is the most important criteria for choosing the right boat? Um, Make sure it feels right when you go on board because you can have all sorts of different names and other people have got their favorite brand names, marks, and um, when you go on board, it's not what you expected. Um, I, I know of several occasions when um, people I've met have absolutely loved their boat, and when I've gone on board, it wouldn't be one I'd choose. So I think it's making sure that you choose something you like, as well as all the other practical op- options that you've got to look for. Yeah, I mean, uh, I find that uh, most people, or many people, when they're kind of stuck in this quandary haven't been honest with themselves on how they're really going to use their boat. And, um, and so they end up choosing something that's not as much fun or, uh, is sort of inappropriate for the, for the type of sailing that they're actually, you know, going to do. And so I try to get people to, to strip away, you know, their, their dreams that are hidden, back in the recesses of their minds and, you know, what do they really have time and budget for? And then choose something that maximizes the fun and ease of use uh, based on how they're going to really use it. Right. And, and surely you've both helped people choose boats. I would think over your, the course of your career, Mike, sure. so sort of your, your job is to just look at the boat and let people know if it's a worthwhile investment. But I'm sure that the coming, coming into the, that is also, is this the right boat for you? Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. Yeah. I remember chatting about that both with both boats I bought with you. I, I have an example on that. A few years ago now, we had a bit of a disaster in the school. We had a, a visiting instructor who got one of our boats um, fa- fatally stuck on a reef. Um, which left us with courses that were booked and students coming to the Caribbean from various places around the planet and no boat to do training in. And we bought one which on reputation and sort of at short notice, we thought, wow, this is a fantastic bargain. Um, beautiful boat, great for offshore racing, but not terribly practical for the um, novices and beginners that we were frequently taking out training. And this was something we learned the hard way. Right. And why wasn't it, why wasn't it good? It was too much of a performance boat. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, it was, mm-hmm. it was a Grand Soleil, an Italian make, um, 46.3 so you know 46 foot boat 
um, and they are what they call performance cruising yachts. So her rig, her mast, was actually very tall in proportion to the length of boat. She had three spreaders, which is unusual on a boat less than 50 feet. Yeah. And um, the mast meant that the mainsail also was huge um, for novices, hard work to really get that main cranked up nice and tight and get her in sailing mode. Um, and of course it also meant that the headsail was huge and it was all manual winches so Genoa was uh, you know um, very large sail uh, 135% we actually started to use a smaller sail to make it more manageable but um, it meant that you really needed to have people who were sort of physically up to doing working on the winches and grinding quite hard and um if you weren't reasonably fit and ready for it then it was you know sometimes mm -hmm. it was too much hard work yeah and i think an important thing is i've i've sailed a lot of different boats i've done a bunch of deliveries i've worked on tall ships and schooners and um even tugboats but having a variety of different boats i've sailed on small and large and I think that's really one of the most important things is for people to have experience on other boats. A lot of people have only sailed one boat and then they move up to another boat and they just haven't had um, broad experience on a variety of different boats. And I think that's such a key factor in, in helping you make those decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's, that's one of the real tough things for a prospective buyer because I, I tell people try to get out and sail on as many different types of boats as you can, but that's easier said than done. And, uh, uh, you know, there's real limited opportunities like to, to do a, a charter type boat or, or borrow a boat, you know, those things are really limited. So it's pretty tough to, to get that kind of experience in a short period of time when you're kind of doing mm -hmm. a boat search. Yeah, no, like, like you said, a lot of the charter boats, they're all basically the same bunch of boats, the four, yeah. three or four different manufacturers. So, but, but One of the things I will say is that for a, a starter boat, many of those charter boats are ideal um, in that they are normally fairly simple. They don't have too many complicated electronics. Um, mm. and you know frequently yeah. just uh, the the two sails one front one back and um, you, you know you, you can learn to sail with that um, people who already have some experience will have a better idea of what type of boat they're looking for but for people going for that first boat it's often a much bigger sort of challenge for them to actually find something which they're comfortable with from the start. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah. Totally agree. That's right. Yeah, and of course there's people with lots of advice, right? What the <laughs> right boat is, um, especially if they, they, they own one. Most people seem to think that their boat is the best boat and, and everyone, everyone should own that same kind of boat. <laughs> um, but really, I, I think you've mentioned it, it depends on what kind of things you plan to do. I think that's one of the biggest criteria and what kind of skills you're coming from. Is there anything else that you think is an important factor for, for me, I would say it's whether or not they plan to keep it on a marina and go sailing at weekends or they're planning to live on board and go cruising long term because there's so many different varieties of um, enthusiastic sailors that maybe go you know, racing with their yacht club on a, a one, one night a week, that sort of thing. Um, a lot of very different types of boats that are suitable for different situations. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I try to point people towards fun, uh, lively performance type boats if they're really just going to use them as day sailors, for example, even if they're not planning on racing. It's, uh, and you know, I'm only speaking from my preferences, but it, for me, if I'm going to go out and sail for four hours and come back home and put the boat up, I find it more fun to have a boat that's maybe lower to the water, lower freeboard, more performance type rig and underbody and it, exhilarating to sail to, you know, keeping everybody's attention versus, uh, you know, an around the world type cruiser. So it, 
it really does matter how, how you plan to use mm-hmm. the boat. Yeah, and Pippa, what, what sort of, your students, I assume, are looking for boats or have boats and maybe want to upgrade or something like that. What do you find currently to be um, hot on their, their priority list? Well, the, I have students that are across the board in capabilities, but I do quite often get novices doing what we call day skipper level who are planning to get their first boats. And they would tend to be um, what I call the standard charter boat selection. Um, We haven't mentioned many names yet, but the obvious ones that come to mind for that would be the Beneteau, Genoa, Bavaria. Um, I don't know if in the States you've got other varieties that are common as well. But they're all good, basic, easy-to-maintain boats. I grew up with classic yachts and wood and varnish and lots of other stuff but um, I wouldn't recommend that for a first timer unless somebody's really keen on the DIY side of things. It reminds me of um, the Bristol Channel Cutter that I always dreamed about and Mike actually surveyed it for me down in Texas there Um, and you know I, I had read all the party books and whatnot and they're such beautiful boats the Bristol Channel Cutter 28 and um, finally found one I could afford that Mike helped me with. But I realized um, when, once we did a bunch of cruising on the BCC 28 with Ther- Teresa and myself, I realized how uncomfortable the cockpit was compared to the North Sea 27. And even though I dreamt about this boat, it was a bit of a bummer to find that the cockpit was, was a little uncomfortable, kind of small, didn't have a good backrest. So that North Sea 27 cockpit was like a nest. I don't know if you know the boat, Pippa, but it's, um, it's got a beautiful backrest built into it to make that aft cabin. And details like that are so hard for people to realize um, before they buy a boat. And, and I just wonder if there's a way to, that we can help people realize those things and, and what some of those criterias might be that, that people should think about before they buy a boat. Well, so certainly if you're buying as a couple, and I know that frequently it's the case that one person is more keen than the other, and um, <laughs> <laughs> nine times out of ten when it's your your average couple, it's going to be the guy that's the one who really wants the boat and he's looking for the performance and the wife, girlfriend, partner is going along with it. And she sort of doesn't know enough to understand what it's going to be like when you're sailing along and to have to um, be able to maybe boil the kettle for a drink um, or a soup or whatever it may be. Um, So I think for people who aren't, should we say, cruising savvy, um, they need to be sure that they can stand securely um, with something to prop them up when they're in the galley. It's very simple basics like this that will make all the difference. Um, I've, I've looked at some of these modern charter boats and there was a trend for a while of creating these wonderful spacious saloon areas and I sort of came down the companionway, took one look, and I thought, well, where do you hold on when you're actually going along sailing? When it was designed, they weren't thinking about people being out on the water. And mm-hmm. so it's it's looking for, you know, a realisation that it won't always be a stable platform sitting in the marina. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I've seen uh, a lot of couples come and go and... Um, with with sort of that scenario and it seems like the ones that were successful that actually you know took off and and traveled and went somewhere the boat fit the requirements of feeling safe and secure um, above everything else because so many times I would you know have correspondence with people that bought a boat and took off and it didn't work out and most of the time it was it was because you didn't feel safe and secure and comfortable and I mean that's a human that's a human right you know and and I tell guys all the time you know you you have to involve your wife more than you're doing right now in this decision making or you're going to be sailing by yourself or you're going to be selling this boat in a year you know and you also have to not yell i do quite often have couples for training and um 
trying to get the guy to allow the woman to learn without him interfering is very mm-hmm. interesting. <laughs> you just have to tell him to shut up, you know, sometimes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Let her learn and, and uh, you know, let her run the show here and get comfortable. Get Teresa on board. She'll Send win. the lady for a course on her own so that she gets comfortable with the, with the sailing and the boat handling before they try it together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And we have the same situation on our boat and our program, and we call it couples therapy on the water. Yeah. <laughs> what, are you, what are you finding about the size of boats that people are interested in these days? I, I had uh, um, some students on recently, and, and they were looking at such large boats. I, I couldn't believe it. And, and I was trying to encourage them to consider something smaller. But I'm curious to see what you think about that, the size that people are buying that these days. What do you yeah, think is a large boat? Um, well, you know, that's a great question. Personally, I think the only reason we have a 45-foot boat is because we run training programs and we have seven people on the boat. I think that if it was just the two of us and maybe our, our little boy, who's two and a half, we would be in the high 30s. That's what we started looking at, actually, in the high 30s. And then we moved up to the 45 because we decided to start the business. You know, now that I have a 45-foot boat, I, I like it, but... It would be a lot of boat for just a couple or a family, I think. Yeah, people are looking at larger boats, that, that's for sure. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's an interesting factor. I mean, I sailed across the Atlantic in a 30-foot boat a long time ago, and it was not unusual. Um, now, most people who do that probably wouldn't consider less than 40 feet. Um, mm-hmm. But a 40-foot boat is perfectly capable of crossing safely, and, and indeed some of the boats less than that are in as well. But I do agree that um, once you get used to something like 45 feet or slightly more, it's probably difficult to downsize. Yeah, I wonder why that is. What do you, what do you think the reason is? You get used to the space on board and the cabins. Um, you, you realise that actually those bunks are a bit longer. And there is a bit more room around the table in the saloon. And as well as that, you get that little bit more space in the cockpit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about actually the buying of boats. Pippa, have, have you owned many boats? Um, probably about half a dozen. Yeah, okay. And Mike, have you owned many boats? Yeah, I've owned, I've owned yeah, about a half a dozen. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I, you know, my first boat, Norsey 27, awesome condition. I bought it, I sailed it, I barely did anything to it. Second boat, I had a bunch of things to do to it just to get it cosmetically up to snuff and to kind of finish off a few little things. And then the third boat we bought, which we now have right now, Rosinante, the Norseman 447, she had been um, sailed around the world and had some worn out, you know, a bunch of worn out things. But I just, I'm curious to know, like, what do you all think about buying a boat that's in mint condition, ready to go, versus one that's going to need some work? And how do you make those decisions on which is the right way to go? Budget. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Budget's one, and 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 skill set and time. Um, you know, it just totally, it it becomes apparent pretty quickly. You know, when when a buyer contacts me to look at a boat whether they're a hands-on, I can fix things, or whether they have to, you know, farm everything out. And as this inspection unfolds over a number of hours, it becomes pretty evident where this boat's going. Is is it, you know, going to need a lot of repairs and things like that, or is it going to be pretty much ready to go? And so often, I don't even have to tell the buyer, you know, where this thing is headed. It kind of unfolds in front of them. And, you know, the, the, the ones that are, you know, are most practical and realize their skills and their limitations can kind of see, oh, this is way more than, than, than I want or can handle or, yeah, I'm comfortable, you know, doing all these things. And so it, it, it really varies from, from buyer to buyer. I have a, a, a little story, an example of how our school started in the Caribbean. My husband had arrived in the Caribbean on a a yacht that had been planning to sail around the Atlantic and go back to the UK and the owner changed his mind and decided to have the boat shipped back to the UK and my husband Brian says well I 
think I'll stay in the Caribbean and maybe start a charter business. And he was looking for a boat on a limited budget. And in the bar, he basically almost paid cash for a boat there and then because someone said, I'm selling my boat, it's just what you need. Benetton Oceanis <laughs> 400. Um, it was such a good price, he bought it. And then he had it hauled out and looked at it and it was a <gasps> big deep breath. <laughs> Um, she had horrendous osmosis because she'd been sitting unused in the water for about two years and hadn't had decent anti-fouling for a long time and so on. Not, not, you know, that was just the, the beginning of the story. But because she had <laughs> been cheap and he was practical, um, he put her in the yard and he was living on board, nowhere else to live at the time, and had the fibreglass peeled off and allowed her to dry out. Well, he did some work on the inside and had her re-glassed and painted. Well, that boat was a 1996 boat. And we sold her year... Well, in fact, that last year, effectively, um, still in the Caribbean, um, for about the same as we'd paid for it. But in that time, she'd worked for us for 12 years in the sailing school. Mm-hmm. Um, probably yeah, slightly more than that and she'd done day charters and she was just a brilliant boat and all the people that came on board said wow what a great boat she's lovely she was solid she was safe an earlier Benito so the hull was still quite thick fiberglass so that was relevant you know she felt solid and I would have gone anywhere on that boat despite the fact that she'd been had her problems which were sort of expensive to begin with, but then she became a really reliable long-term boat. So uh, it's not always a disaster when you sort of think, oh, what have I done? Right. But you had some skills, which really helps. Yeah. And in fact, just a quick mention on that. um, My father was a yacht broker for a a few years after he'd retired from the British Navy. And um, one of his sort of phrases, because I did occasionally work with him, to people who found a boat with osmosis, he said, osmosis never sank a boat. And in fact, if you're prepared to deal with it, and Michael, <laughs> back me up or not on that, but if you're prepared yep. to deal with it, it's actually quite often a good way of getting a cheap boat. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. Yeah, most of the time, it's really something that can be lived with even, you know. Is there any is there any merit to people saying, which I've heard recently, is that, oh, I don't want to buy a boat that's more than 10 years old. Uh, because it's going to have too many problems. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be a case-by-case thing. I, I, I don't think making a generalization like that is is fair, you know, to, to the various boats. And, and so what would the criteria be that would make that so or make that not so if we were looking for a, a boat older than 10 years old? Maintenance of the boat so far? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And how do you tell if a boat has good maintenance? Well, um, there's a lot of clues you know, is all the equipment worn out and, and uh, not been replaced as needed over the years? Is the, are the hidden places, the bilges, uh, filthy and oily? And, you know, the boat sort of cries out to you when you start opening it up and uh, looking in places that, that most people, you know, don't go into on a regular basis. It's, they speak pretty loudly. It's a bit like and, when uh, you go into a home. You can see if it's somebody who's house <laughs> proud or, um, but, you know, they, they sort of live a bit like students, but they're happy doing so. Um, <laughs> it's the same with boats. And, and things like um, with sailing boats, are the lines all coiled tidily and left looking like they're looked after? Are the signs of uh, mooring warps, lines... Um, chafing looking tired or are they nice and sort of looking good and strong shall we say yeah in, in the anchor locker is is the anchor is the anchor chain all frozen together with salt yeah, <laughs> yeah and the running rigging uh, you know around here in south texas if it's not used on a regular basis it'll all turn green and funky looking and get hard so it's it's pretty you, you can you can pretty much walk up to a boat without even going inside of it and get a get a pretty accurate feel for for what you're getting ready to get into. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And our environment here is super harsh. You know, the wind blows off of the ocean twenty to thirty knots every day, and 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 our air is salt laden. 
And uh, so all of the metal rusts and corrodes really quickly unless you make a concerted effort to take care of it on a regular basis. Definitely, yeah. yeah that that um, telltale green around the metal fittings on the decks and things. and the, <laughs> um, But also, in fact, if the electronics on board have been maintained, everything will just work when you turn it on. If they haven't been kept clean and everything else, you'll have intermittent faults showing. Oh, yeah, have a bit of trouble with the chart plotter sometimes. It doesn't want to turn on. Okay. <laughs> right. One thing I remember when we were doing our boat down in Panama, which is where we bought our boat, is finding so many wires that were just yeah. hang, hanging in the bilge and just they had added so much stuff to the boat. Yeah. But I, I remember finding, we found a bunch of um, speaker wire that they'd used to wire electrical stuff. Yeah. And I, I think that's an interesting point. I think that my hunch, I don't have any real answers, but my hunch is they were in somewhere but they had no resources to buy proper wire but they had speaker wire or they could get that on a, a remote island in the pacific or something of that nature and so they used what they could and, and i was just wondering if you see that often on boats that have been on extensive journeys if you see some of that macgyvering going on totally yeah i see it all the time in in all aspects of the boat but then again i can think of this this one boat you know an island packet 38 I surveyed the boat for an Air Force captain or such that was going to go around the world. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, right. He had, he had already owned the boat, but he was getting it ready. And it was a perfect boat. And eight years later, he sails back into Texas with this boat. And I went on board it because he was selling it to survey it. And you would have thought it never left the dock, that he just sat and worked on it all the time. It was perfect. It was unbelievable. So I know he faced the same challenges that other people face with, you know, gear failure, but he, he kept it going in pristine condition versus the guy that used duct tape and speaker wire, you know. Mm -hmm. We sold our Grand Soleil. We, we sailed across the Atlantic to get to Mallorca and moved, moved house in our sailing yacht. And then when we arrived here, we sold her. And I was conscious that um, not only had the boat done an offshore race the February before we left, um, she'd been used in the school and we hadn't had the time to do a lot of what I call the, the in-depth maintenance. And I had visions of doing it en route across the Atlantic, but of course that didn't happen either. Um, <laughs> usual usual story um, but uh, we arrived here and we pottered and you know brought things back up to speed as best we could and um, when we sold her I was still cringing to myself about some of the things that should have got done but hadn't but on the other <laughs> hand we found an owner who was happy to, happy to take her as she was so it wasn't a problem but when yeah. when you are long term on board the boat there are always things that need doing and you cannot physically, when you're doing long distance cruising, carry you know, spares for everything. You have to be able to do what you can with what you've got and sometimes that's your end result. You, you get times where people have managed with something and it worked so they didn't quite get around to putting it as it should have been. Right, right. Temporary thing that became permanent. Yep. Well, anyway, we've pulled. I, you wouldn't believe how much wire I've pulled off that boat, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Okay, so, oh, it's unbelievable because I, I just can't. I couldn't comprehend going in there and trying to figure something out and and having so yeah. many wires. So I just started pulling stuff out, and yeah. it's way nicer in there now. When you go to look and troubleshoot something, That's great. sometimes I I know a couple that had a a boat that they were sort of bought well-worn and gra gradually got around to doing stuff. He was a helicopter engineer and so was his wife. So they were both mm. quite practical people. But they just got so frustrated with trying to catch up with the repairing things electrical, they just stripped it all out and started again. <laughs> and that's a good question. Now, did they do that after they had done some sailing? Yes, with, yes. With they the owned the boat for a couple of years before they finally said, right, that's it. It's all coming out and we're starting again. Yeah. Right. See, that's brilliant because I see a lot of people buying boats and then doing massive refits before they ever go sailing and not knowing the boat. And then sometimes they don't even get out sailing because something happens. Yeah. 
That's very common. They spend all their time working on the boat and it becomes sort of the, uh, the project and, and they never actually make it, make it out. Yeah. Very common. Right. Yeah. I'm sure you see that too, Pippa, right? Absolutely. No, I was just going to say, you know, when you get that boat and unless it's so, you know, much in need of attention that you can't go and sail it, just go out and sail it and get a feel for what's right, what, you know, what you want to change, uh, you know, just to sort of understand the, how the boat sails, what it's going to be like when you're out there, you know, sailing for real in a cruising location. And um, th- there may be things that you wouldn't do what you've you sort of had in mind when you first looked at it in the marina when you were going to buy it. Yeah, it's super easy with the internet to get overly excited about all the gear that you can buy and all the things you can do for your boat. But in fact, it's really just best to get out there. You're right. Take it out to play. Take it out to play. That's right. And get to know the boat. And somebody once told me they think it takes two years to get to know your boat. And um, I thought, oh, that's crazy. We were sailing a lot on this Beneteau that we refurbed. And... I realized after about two years, and we were doing just fun racing with a local yacht club, just a bit of, you know, fun with friends. And um, we realized that we were actually making the boat go probably about two knots faster than we were the first time we took her out because we understood (laughs) her. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. It does take some time to get the subtle nuances. I I agree. Um, Let's switch topics a little bit. I want to ask... If there's anything that's a priority for you when choosing a boat, such as maybe like deck layout or cockpit size or, um, I don't know, anything of that nature, what, what other priorities do you have personally that, that you find to be um, important? Um, well, for, for me, um, a comfortable helm position. Um, I don't like to rely totally on autopilot. I like to actually steer the boat. I am quite short. And so for me, it's also important that the sort of coach roof on top of the sort of cabin area isn't cluttered with derailed vents and life rafts and other stuff, which means you can't actually see where you're going very well. I look for practical cockpit stowage because sometimes you have these um, pretty boats with no space to put things. And... I'm also very keen on safety, so I would like to be sure that the boat had good safety equipment before I went anywhere. Well, <laughs> what I, I'm also wondering about the boat design itself, there's, if there's anything about the design of the boat that you find would be a safety item that you think is super important. Being able to, to leave the cockpit and go forward safely is, is an important you know, attribute of, of any boat, I think. And uh, without tripping over things or having to hang over the side or whatnot, and that that gets overlooked a lot. And what's what's the criteria for that? Well, you know, uh, take your take the Bristol Channel Cutter. You know, uh, I had one, and it didn't have lifelines or stanchions on it, but it had those wooden bulwarks. And there were times when I was on my hands and knees crawling forward, <laughs> go handle the head sails. You know, but I felt I, I felt totally safe doing it because I had room to do it. And those bulwarks are really, you know, comforting from that standpoint. So, you know, having some wide side decks uh, is a big part of it. Right. Those bulwarks were like six inches tall, I think. They're more like a foot, you know. They yeah, were, that's right. Yeah. More like a foot. Yeah. yeah. Something there that sort of went through my mind. I mean, there's a classic yacht design, um, a swan. And I never understood why they had a sort of, if you like, a crew cockpit aft um, where the, the helm usually was and you know, people could gather. And then you had to crawl across open deck to get mm-hmm. to the gang, uh, so the, the, com- the companion way down into the saloon. Yeah. And it always struck me as crazy. I thought, you know, these are supposed to be the sort of, the classic yacht that everybody who wants something special would like one of these. And it always struck me that it was particularly unsafe for out in open water. Yeah, I remember those boats well. Yeah, that's 
that's a good point. That that always was a head scratcher. Yeah. Going across that eight or 10 foot, you know, deck with nothing there was, you know, could get kind of hairy. So <laughs> interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, some of the smaller ones, you still, had, you, you still had six feet and that's a long way when it's tilted yeah, on your yeah. side with nothing to hold on to. Yeah. Especially if like me, you're five foot nothing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, Mike, I'm, I'm a fan of going forward as well. I find everything works so much easier. There's less friction mm-hmm. and that, you know, I can reef the sail off almost any point of, of sail. I can reef the main on any point of sail just about. Yeah. And it comes down quickly. I just find it to be a little more an easier thing to do. But a lot of people are, are seemingly afraid to leave their cockpit. Yeah. I'm just wondering what what you all think about that. Yeah, I totally uh, prefer to have all the the halyards and the sail handling the lines on on the mast. Uh, I can reef the mainsail in a fraction uh, of the time that that I can with say single line reefing led to the cockpit or something and plus plus the visibility, you know, typically you know, if it's a cruising boat, it's got a bimini or, or dodger, and you, you know you can't really see what you're doing as well. But if you're up at the mast handling the lines, it's uh, it's quick, and there there are fewer chances to screw things up and break things because you can actually see what's going on. And uh, I I think it's also relevant that if you're planning to go offshore at all, and we're not talking about sort of just um, pottering within 10 miles of your, your normal harbour um, but to have what we call jack stays that run from the cockpit area right up to the bow um, more than one occasion I've had a, a furling head sail that's given problems and the only place you can fix it is by going right up on the bow and to have yeah. a safety line that you can actually use to keep you on board um is actually very important so that is a piece of safety equipment i would look for if it was just the fixing points that's not a problem because you can always rig something but um if if you get get a boat that you're planning to go offshore and then make sure you can have what we call lazy jacks well let's sorry jack stays jack stays Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right yeah i think we call them jack lines on in this side of the atlantic for the most part but yep understand what you mean for sure yeah we always like to come back with the same number of people that that we think that's one of the challenges yeah yeah i have fallen off of a boat in the middle of the ocean but luckily i had a harness attached and uh it just uh yeah it saved my life literally wow wow yeah. were you single-handing no i was delivering a, a race boat across to key west from texas in january and we were just you know reefing the main at two o'clock in the morning and uh so it had a main sheet back in the cockpit and i just happened to clip my harness onto the main sheet tackle right there and i leaned over to grab the running backstay and secure it and the lifeline broke and oh, wow. uh, i went into the water we we're doing about 10 knots and uh slammed it you know i came up short on the the line it slammed my face into the side of the boat i got a big black eye but you know Mm. i was still attached to the boat and uh, they were able to help me get back up so it does work so let me ask you because the the classic story i've never fallen off the boat and been dragged by the tether is it hard to are you getting your mouth full of water Uh, was that was that an issue or just getting slammed against the side of the boat you know it, it i wasn't I wasn't being drugged for more than 10 seconds. Okay. So yeah. uh, I couldn't tell you what happened, to be honest with you. It happened yeah. so fast. But, so fast. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of a careless, kind of carefree guy. <laughs> and, you know, that was definitely God looking after me. Because uh, I'll wear a harness, but oftentimes I won't clip it on to anything, you know, which mm-hmm. is not something I would <laughs> teach people. And, uh, Guilty you know, myself, just, yeah. Just happened to do it, and uh, yeah, they would have never found me. You know, no way. No. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. Good. Good. Good story there, Mike. <laughs> um, you know what? Speaking of going forward to the mast, though, I, I do think the granny bars are so important. Yeah, you have them on your boat, if I remember. I sure do, and I they're they're the best. Yeah. And then let's talk about interior layouts. If there's anything on your list of things that you find to be super important, preferences, whatever it happens to be, for safety, for comfort down below that you would look for 
in a boat? Um, well, for, for me, one of the things is, I, I mentioned briefly, the, the galley situation. If you've got the what they call the linear galley, which runs maybe all down one side of the boat, you need something that you can either you know, lean against or you know, st- stand securely so you're not being thrown around if the boat is out sailing when you're in the galley. Mm-hmm. Um, other things to consider are, again, cruising level. Do you want a fridge? Do you want a freezer? Do you need a freezer for what you're planning? Is that freezer going to be something you don't want on board? And the sort of potential for that type of thing in the saloon area, would you be happier with a table that you have to sort of climb around to sit down? Or are you going to be happy to have one that you can sort of sit everybody in nice little chairs which then um, have to be secured in place when you go sailing? Um, Do you want a saloon that you can convert to an extra bunk when you have family on board? Um, think about that. If you're going to convert your saloon to a bunk, it means that nobody can be down below when those people are in bed. Um, Lots of sort of considerations. Do you need three cabins or four cabins? Or do you only need two? Is one of your cabins going to be like um, a spare room for stowing things in? Or is (laughs) it going to become a workshop for all the tools that you're going to want when you're doing this wonderful cruising? And do you need to have an ensuite bathroom for every cabin? Um, I often think that's probably wasted space on a sort of 40, 45 foot boat. Um, you, you could get more use out of the space if you had maybe two heads bathrooms for three or four cabins. Don't know whether Mike has any thoughts on that one. But. Yeah, I you know, again, it totally depends on how the boat's going to be used. But for a boat that's going to be doing passage making, I really prefer like a U-shaped galley that's right there at the companionway. So I can hand, you know, everybody's always like, hey, while you're down there, could you hand me up a beer or can you do this? <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, if you can just reach, you know, grab and reach and grab and reach and hand up, it, it makes life a lot more enjoyable for everybody. And also, if you're cooking, being next to the companionway, typically you can get, you know, more breeze that way and cool air. You know, for for how many people are going to be on watch or off watch at a given time, really good, solid place to lay down whichever tack you happen to be on. I've, I've had to sleep on the cabin sole so many times just because there wasn't a good place to sleep. You know, the queen size berth, I was rolling off of it, you know, or something like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great point. It's not just the, the, the galley, but also has it got a navigation table where you can sit and even if it's just write your logbook, if you're not using paper charts, then, you know, you, you might want to do a little bit logbook writing or whatever. Is it a seat you can sit on? on both tacks or are you going to get mm-hmm. thrown into the middle of a saloon when you're on certain tacks? yeah yeah um and quite often that nav table is is a place that people don't pay much attention to but i've seen some crazy ones on some of the modern charter boats where you're expected to sit on sort of perched on a, a movable stool uh, yeah. at the, the, at the right. end of the desk sort of thing and um, i'm thinking yeah don't think I'm going to be crossing the Atlantic in that one. <laughs> right. You need to imagine the interior of the boat on a 45-degree angle for days <laughs> and then make some decisions. Yep. I just uh, did a trip down to from Maine to New Bedford, Massachusetts. It was, you know, 200-some-odd miles, but it was upwind the entire time. We were on we were on a heel every day for five days. That was yeah. Yeah. It, does, it does. It does. But it, it really shows you, you know, what good boat design down below is. Or is not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it highlights the problem. And, and then you know, right? It exactly it does. Then the other thing that comes to mind, talking, talking about heads, is through hulls. Yeah. I, I I just went. I remember when we surveyed Rosinante, our Norseman four four seven. There were I think eighteen or nineteen through hulls, <laughs> and uh, I've reduced that a few, but. Yeah. So, so something else for people to sort of to get an idea of whether or not um, the boat has been well maintained is actually to try turning some of the seacocks on those through holes. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're actually movable, the chances are they've yeah. been moved fairly regularly. Yeah, 
pretty rare to get on a boat where they all work properly. All right, I would like to ask you guys one more question. What are some of your favorite boats that you've sailed on or think are well designed and laid out and constructed? Oh, for me, I, I did love our Grand Soleil. Um, she was a beautiful boat and I used her offshore racing and I sailed her across the Atlantic. And I would do it again, but she, she did have design problems, one of which I'll share with you quickly. Mm-hmm. The vent for the diesel tank, it had, you know, just a little um, cowl shape over, over the vent from the diesel tank so that the diesel tank was able to breathe, um, was on the side of the um, cockpit mm. combing. And if we were pushing her a bit hard... The water drove into the diesel tank. So after mm. I'd sort of screwed my tank a few times, well, I, th- I think the tank seriously twice in offshore racing and leaving me without an engine. Um, it is something that um, I, I would recommend anyone with a Grand Soleil <laughs> looks at carefully. Mm. But um, I, I did love the boat for her performance and the fact that, you know, she... she um, felt like a champion even though she was um, still within the budget of a lot of people on a, a sort of cruising um, budget I would say and, and great as a long distance boat if you're experienced and you're happy to deal with the fact that she's a big girl yeah mm-hmm. are you so you're saying the vent for the diesel tank would was able to take water in spray yep but not wow. no, not spray. I'm talking about immersion. Oh, <laughs> so, oh yeah, okay. Water on deck. Water on deck. Big weather and the, yeah. Um, I'm okay. talking fairly extreme conditions. That's why it, it took a year before I discovered the problem. Um, before we pushed her that hard in Caribbean big seas. But I see. It, it was one. Of, you know, first time it happened, we couldn't understand where all the diesel had come from. But then gradually there was a you know an awareness that we were sort of hang on a minute, this is happening again. Where's it coming from? This is not just an accident. There's a problem here. And that right. was a design problem, which we uh, amended with a, a a better cowl that covered the hole so that it didn't siphon back when we were I sailing. Yeah. One for you yeah. to look out for, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, if, uh, you know, for a cruising boat, I like, uh, you know, I like the Valiant 40, it's a kind of a good mix of cruising and performance, uh, which is a lot along the lines of the Norseman similar. And, uh, you know, the Creelock boats, Pacific Seacraft Creelock boats are good little passage makers. I've also done a lot of offshore sailing in a Condor in various Condor forties. These are lightweight, high performance trimarans that are really exciting to sail, but you're going to, you're going to be wet all the time, but they're <laughs> super fun to, to make passages in. And then, you know, for like day sailing, I love the, the low freeboard boats. Um, you know, some of the, some of the J boats, uh, anything that's, uh, got you close to the water for, from a day, you know, it doesn't have to have accommodations down below the Alarian 28 express is a fun mm-hmm. little boat, stuff like that. So, Again, I, I really try to choose and point people to, to how they're really going to use the boat because a, a Creelock 40, you know, just knocking around in a bay is not going to be nearly as much fun, you know, as a J92, for example, doing the same thing. But, you know, take it offshore for a week-long passage and, you know, then that the Creelock starts to come into its own. So. Yeah. It's, it's the difference between whether you're prepared to sort of um, to camp to have the performance or um, if you want mm-hmm. the comfort for, for going on holiday in it or vacation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Any any last minute tips for people buying boats or looking at boats? Things to watch out for? Yeah. Get get on board as many different boats as you can you can and try to get on a, a variety of, of really different designs and styles and it'll become apparent what you're attracted to mm-hmm. but but also um if you're not if you haven't got access to going sailing on lots of different boats um there are so many sailing blogs out there these days that you can actually see quite a lot of boats mm-hmm. just by going on youtube that's true 
Yeah. It may not be quite the same as having the experience on board, but it's there. And just a, just a quickie, Mike mentioned the Island Packet 38. Good, solid boat, beautifully finished interior. I have friends who have owned them and who would not buy anything else. Um, but when I went sailing, I sort of mm -hmm. thought, Okay, it's not a performance sailing yacht. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, something that's um, famous for its comfort may not necessarily give you the thrill you might be looking for. Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. I think an, another good point that I just thought of is that you can get into the owner forums and sometimes you can get an idea of what the problems are on the boats by oh, looking yeah. at the discussions. Oh, yeah. You know, the sure. design flaws. And, and, and you do see people ask the question, thinking of buying an X yacht, who knows? Um, the, the response will be from all sorts of experienced people and some of them will poo-poo it and others will say, oh, they're brilliant, but you must be prepared to start making your own judgment and seeing where people are saying they think it's a problem because is that a problem for you personally? Try to read between the lines of all those comments that you yeah. have. Oh, yeah. so true. Yep, everyone's got their own opinion, and that's what's tough for people getting started. I think is that they just are, they don't, they don't have their own opinion or know how to judge, make any judgment calls on their own. It's something they're looking for guidance, but um, it's one of those that the the best way of learning about all the different boats is experience, and if you can't get out on different ones. Buy something you think you'll be comfortable with, give it a go, and if it's not right, then change it up in a year or two. Excellent. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there, you guys. I, that was fantastic. I enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks very much. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother. And you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found.